0: welcome welcome back to mind your body and soul it's been a long journey we've uh, podcasting over two years now uh this will be the end of season three so a big shout out to Matias sweet miss lane steeple miss Kara brown mr ian castello uh, Mind my, my, my Your Body and Soul team who has helped this podcast from the beginning to now also give a big thanks to uh, Miss Katrina Ball, one of our uh, co-workers here who's also contributed to the podcast and our wonderful guests, all of the guests that we've had on the podcast, as well as all of you viewers, because without you viewing this content, supporting this content, we wouldn't be able to grow the way we're growing. So we appreciate everybody who has supported this podcast and we look forward to a great future because we're not stopping and today is no exception so remember that mind your body and soul is an educational podcast that focuses on all things health related to help our listeners learn more about various health topics and information they may not have access to we seek to inform empower uplift and mobilize our listeners to becoming the healthiest versions of themselves remember you can catch us usually on Wednesdays, but make sure you uh, every week on our YouTube channel. Uh, Also on our website at www.nmcpodcast.com as well as our parent website at www.neighborhoodmedicalcenter.org. Make sure you visit our parent website so you can take care of your healthcare needs and your medical needs if you need them. Also, you can catch us on our podcast platforms such as Anchor, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Google podcast and once again, this YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe to this YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell. So whenever we put out a new video, you'll know about it. Like this video, comment and share That way more and more people can know about us and what we are doing. So this, our guest today, we go back about over 10 years. over 10 years she is actually one of the first people in Tallahassee when I actually got started doing my HIV education sexual education to allow me to come into her facility and teach and so definitely appreciate her for that because between her and Miss Brenda Chopin I was able to build um, build my skill set uh, helped me grow as a as an individual, as a speaker, as a teacher, as an outreach coordinator and everything. So I definitely thank her for that. So for the past 34 years, she has worked in the field of social work and she's also worked in the field of juvenile justice with over a decade of working in the state government and two decades working in the nonprofit sector as the supervisor of the Leon County Juvenile Assessment Center and Juvenile Services Unit. And that's where I did a lot of my classes. At. So In her new role as Community Outreach Coordinator, she is assigned to the Adult Services Unit with with this village, serving the Big Bend region from Franklin County to Taylor County. As a Community Outreach Coordinator, the goal is to bring awareness to individuals in the communities being served with a variety of concepts uh, pertaining to substance misuse, such as new treatment options, harm reduction strategies, reducing stigma around substance use, and mental health and how to access treatment and services. I am bringing to you the one and only, my friend, the great Miss Lisa Sherry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of our podcast. I'm so happy. Thank
1: you, you, my friend, Joseph Ward. And I uh, can't say good enough things about you as well. (laughs) Being able to do what you do every day, um, what your partners do, what your team members do helps um, our community be safer and healthier. And that's what that's what we do, right?
0: Yes, yes, that's what we do. And this, but I, seriously though, thank, thank you, you and Miss Brenda. Um, I had a yeah. chance, to, I had yeah. chance to talk to Miss Brenda, and I'll probably see her tomorrow when I go to this village in Woodville. But you two have really, really helped me out and helped set a foundation, um, for what I, uh, everything that I'm able to do today. Um, I, just allowing me to come into the facility, um, and allowing me to grow as a as an educator, allow me to grow as outreach workers, somebody STD, HIV prevention, working with the children, um, because you didn't have to do it. It, You could have picked anybody in the city, but you picked me and you allowed me to continue to come back. And I really, really, really do appreciate that because you've contributed to everything that I have going on right now. So thank you very much.
1: You are very welcome. My pleasure. Yes, ma'am. And I am excited to be here today. Uh, to talk to you and uh, anybody else in the community who wants to listen about Disc Village,
0: oh, yes. where
1: I have spent um, 20 years of my life providing uh, services to individuals, then youth and families. So, right. my so my uh, it's always a pleasure being able to yes. bring that information out there.
0: Yes, ma'am. So, Miss Miss chair how did you working working in um, in the social services and social work or and juvenile justice. What made you choose this path? What inspired you? How did you get uh, interested in the in this career path uh, despite all the other career paths that you could have chosen?
1: Sure. Um, you know, like you said, 34 years and it's a lifetime ago. Hard to kind of think back. But I know from the very beginning uh, and I think most of us, when especially those of us that are in school, we are kind of trying to figure out what we want to do when we grow up, right? What are we going right. to do for a career? And that's daunting uh, to think about, but I always knew I wanted to help people. So social work seemed to be the best fit for career choice. And that at the time, you know, when you think about helping people, I didn't realize that what that really means is serving with purpose. Yes. And um, to be in service, uh, whether it, it can manifest itself in a variety of different ways. But for me, um, social work was the fit and you know what i always tell my young students that we work with through internships is the great thing about internships is it allows you to have opportunity to network and kind of see how things go um, so i did my internship with Appalachie Center for Human Services and they offered me my first position so that happens a lot with a lot of interns so i accepted the position and it was working with adolescents So I worked at an adolescent treatment um, hospital uh, way back when it was called Water Oak. And that's where I got my first exposure to working with adolescents. Um, However, when you talk about being involved in juvenile justice for all the years that I was in, and it is a difficult field to be in. The reason I think I gravitated towards juvenile justice was because of my personal experiences. Um, Growing up, my brother went to Dozier School for Boys, which is a unfortunately well-known place where a lot of uh, tragedies occurred um, to many young men who were sent there by the state of Florida. Um, He was there in the 1970s, 75, and then um, my experiences as a child is being in court and uh, going to Dozier every other weekend to visit my brother. And then a few years after that, uh, when he got out, probably four years after that, he was in the county jail and then spent about five years incarcerated in the state prison system. So I spent a lot of my adolescent years um, traveling the state of Florida to go and visit my brother once a month in DeSoto County Correctional Institute. So those things were not unknown to me. And I think the bigger part of that is remembering the pain and anguish that my family went through in all of those experiences. When you love somebody and they're in trouble um, and their experiences are leading you down a path into systems, and that's really a difficult thing. So by having those personal experiences and knowing what my family went through, I could very well empathize and understand what those moms and kids right. and family members were going through. So um, it wasn't a scary thing to me, and um, it was just a, a way of which I could maybe try to give back um, so that they could have an understanding how to navigate through these very difficult systems, criminal justice system probably being the most difficult system to navigate through.
0: Yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's noble. And that's, um, it's an undertaking that a lot of people won't take up, but I know for myself, I didn't even understand. Um, cause when I look at my, where I am now and just my understanding of different career paths, people can take, um, different, the, just how these different systems and things work, because I, I work in public health now, but, I had no idea public health was even it even existed until I went to the interview. And so so hearing you say that, but also thinking on the other side of there are a lot of things that happen to people um, in many different realms and many different levels. And we have so many uh, a great number of our population who really don't know that this happened, don't understand it's happening, why it's happening and everything around it. And so. It's just it just made me think about that of um, another reason why we do podcasts like this. So we can try to expose as much information to as many people as possible so they can know that we can at least plant that seed. Because Absolutely. a seed a seed was planted with you and that's, that's what made you pursue these things. And with that seed being planted with you allowed you to help so many different children over the years.
1: Yes. Thousands.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Because. Being able, especially being able to come in and some of the days when I would come in, it's their graduation day and seeing the kids uh, graduate or just seeing them when they first come into when they graduate and how they have a different mindset and different attitude on life, a better understanding of the consequences of their actions. That makes me feel good because I know that they won't walk through those doors again in that same capacity.
1: That's the hope.
0: Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So. When exactly did you start with, um, well, exactly uh, your career starting, and Mm -hmm. when did you transition from, um, what you said, the uh, Water Oak to this village?
1: Sure. Um, Probably about a year or so after that, um, I had an opportunity to, you know, we always want to do good work, but we do have to make money, (laughs) so I got a, a Opportunity to make a little bit more money at a um, organization called um, Sunrise Community. They work with developmentally disabled individuals. So I worked with them for a year, and then a position presented itself with Dis Village, and that was working at a um, residential commitment program. Used to be by the airport. Was called Criswell House. Uh-huh. So Criswell House was designed for um, boys who were felony offenders um, through the state of Florida to be committed. This uh, Village was providing overlay services in the evening, uh, basically running groups for the kids at night. And I was hired on to do that. Um, it was my first exposure to working with adolescents in the right. criminal justice system because before they were adolescents in a psychiatric hospital, which is a little, which is different. right? Um, you're still dealing with traumatized kids, period. Um, and, you know, back then trauma-informed care wasn't discussed. It wasn't, it wasn't right. in the vocabulary. Um, but that is exactly what these kids were. They were traumatized um, from very early ages, a variety of different ways in which they were traumatized. And they ended up either in a mental health facility or a criminal justice facility. And um, the opportunity then presented itself, a job opened up at Criswell House, which was back then run by HRS, which stood for Health and Rehabilitative Services. It was a monster of an agency um, that covered everything and um, was broken up in the 1990s, ended up making about six different agencies out of one. And Department of Juvenile Justice was one of those agencies that came out of HRS.
0: I remember HRS.
1: (laughs) Probably when you were a whippersnapper. Yeah. So Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Way back then. But yeah, so that was my first exposure working in um, for the state. Basically, I went to work for them for 11 (laughs) years. HRS morphed into Department of Juvenile Justice. Um, many things transpired. We formed um, the very first pilot project in the state, which was um, the intake unit, a combination right. of state employees and disc village employees who were completing assessments. That was a really new concept um, 35 years ago, mm-hmm. which was assessing kids to determine what was going on in their lives and why they were involved in the system. And then what resources in Um, services could be put in place to assist those families and kids. This is before juvenile assessment centers were built. Precursor to the assessment centers. Um, So that is, you know, a wonderful opportunity for me. So I was able to go from residential um, to what they used to call community control, which is now called juvenile probation. And then from community control or probation into the area of intake and assessment. So that is what led me to working with the Juvenile Assessment Center was the precursor of the um, pilot project, which was called the Leon County Intake
0: Unit. Right. Right. So from from your experience, and your uh, opinion, how effective would you say the juvenile assessment center or the transitions that they've made to the juvenile assessment center have been on reducing the number of children who are coming through the juvenile assessments and who are being arrested for drug-related crimes?
1: You know the numbers I think ebb and flow as the year over time. I think the the bigger part for that which is reducing the number of youth that go into the criminal justice system was right after um, the creation of the juvenile assessment centers which was 1994-1995 Leon County was able to start the civil citation program. Right. That statute was civil citation statute was on the books for many many years in the state of Florida but it wasn't utilized. And it wasn't utilized because there was no funding associated to it. It was um extra manpower, you know, duties for <clears throat> officers but who wants to take on more responsibility without you know, any kind of compensation or things of that nature. So it was hardly ever used. So what you ended up having, uh, the way the systems work sometimes is build it, they will come, which is not always a good thing. Um, So when they were creating these juvenile assessment centers, the reason that this happened in the mid-19, early 1990s was because of the tourist murders that were happening across the state in early 1990. Um, They were tragic and they were um, highly high profile Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: it was affecting the state of Florida's tourist economy, which then made them bring a uh, spotlight to what the problems were, which is very young kids committing very horrendous crimes. So that's when HRS got broken up and they created Department of Juvenile Justice to put this big focus on these I even hate to use the term, but you probably, remember, it was super predators, you know, yeah. they, you know, it, um, <clears throat> making these kids seem like they're monsters.
0: Yeah. Their behaviors
1: like were monstrous. Um, but what got those kids to those rest stops on the highways with guns um, didn't just happen overnight. Right. right. So um, <laughs> what they began to do though, was the pendulum swung, really hard to the right or the area of uh, incarceration. So they began to build programs, commitment programs, Mm -hmm. um, on a much higher level than they ever did before. So when you build programs, the outcome is you're going to put bodies into those programs. So one answer to try to curb the number of kids who were going into this system because the most dangerous door of the criminal justice system for anybody to walk through is the front door because once you walk in the front door they got the system has you and it's very hard to back out and get out the back door so if every kid you keep out of the front door is a kid you're probably keeping from the system in general Civil citation was a great answer to that. It allows these, um, back then, first-time offenders, kids who have no prior criminal history, who've made a stupid kid mistake, um, to get an opportunity to get it like a ticket, a citation. Mm -hmm. And then through that program, they have the ability to be held accountable for their actions, um, to learn and grow through intervention services and groups and classes, support from the staff. Um, Their families also get support Going through these kinds of things is um, difficult for families, especially for kids who've never been in trouble before. Navigating systems is very hard. And so this kept those kids and those families out of the system and also provided them the assistance that they needed to get back on track. Uh, Quick turnaround. The program was, uh, the whole goal was to have those kids in and out within uh, just a couple of months. And back on to whatever it is that they needed to be doing at school and home and with their families and their communities. Uh, It didn't cost anything. So the families did not get charged any um, fees for these services. And it was win-win for everybody. Um, Saves taxpayers money because those kids aren't going into a court system. Because every court system um, costs the taxpayers of that county money every time someone goes in there. So... You know, you just you save taxpayer dollars, you're working with kids, keeping them out of the system and also providing um, the ability for services and holding the kids accountable so they can learn from their behaviors. So what an opportunity there. Uh, Civil Citation is now utilized in all 67 counties and it is uh, now allowable for more than just one time. So the expansions that the state legislature has um, done for civil citation over the last two decades has been um, a big help because uh, that kind of pushed people to utilize the statute, which wasn't really being utilized um, to the extent that it needed to be to provide kids what they call pre-arrest diversion programs. Yes. There's lots of post-arrest diversion programs.
0: Right, right.
1: Court, drug court, urban, you know, there's a handful of them. But all of those kids had to get arrested to get that diversion opportunity.
0: Right.
1: So we want to do pre-arrest
0: diversion opportunities. Um, I am team prevention, 100%. If We can stop it on the front end. We can, we don't have as worse consequences on the back end.
1: That's it. That's it. And prevention services have really done a big um, service as well in keeping kids out of the juvenile justice system. So, you know, prevention was a big push 30 years ago as well. So I think all these things together have helped us um, have more resources for kids. And also, I think the system is also the pendulum has now swung the other way where they were closing programs. Um, and trying to serve kids in their communities, which is which is important,
0: and really right. how it should be. Okay, yeah. so that was a great and thorough explanation of the Juvenile Assessment Center and civil citation. Um, so let's take it back a bit and this village as a whole, because a lot of people think they know about this village, but then they. They don't know all of the information or all the services that this village can offer. So can you explain to us what this village is and uh, in total what services do you all provide?
1: Sure. Um, And you're right. There are a lot of uh, services and I'm going to do my best to make sure I don't leave any out as we go through the conversation. Um, This village has been in the community for over 50 years, Mm -hmm. a private nonprofit organization. started out at FSU as the uh, Drug Information Service Center, which is what DISC actually stands for. People don't really think about that because we're just DISC Village now, but it is an acronym and it does stand for something. Right. And then of course, um, all those years ago, about 50 years ago, the agency uh, created the um, programs down in Woodville, which is probably the ones that are the most familiar with the organization, um, just because it's been the longest standing one. So, the program, let me try to get some little notes here because I don't want to forget anything. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's so much. Right. So The program down in Woodville was the very first one that was created. It was the nation's first drug program to be operated under the um, Florida State University. Receiving funding um, was through the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So those funding sources changed over the years, and we've been able to maintain um, a variety of different kinds of funding in order to keep these programs operating and running and expanding. So the agency... um, Moved down to Woodville, which was the first campus, and then began okay. to bring those uh, services to outlying counties and to Leon County through uh-huh. the Tallahassee Leon County Human Service Center, which is on Pensacola Street. It's um, where many of our programs started in the outreach kind of area, intake area, um, bringing services into the community. Uh, whether it was HIV, like you had discussed, um, you know kind of your intro into healthcare. So all these kinds of um, community-based needs were at the Tallahassee Leon County Human Service Center, which was built. And then Martin Luther King um, service area was uh, added on. Yeah. That was where adult services was. Adult services now um, on Tharp Street in Tallahassee. However, like I said, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, we have programs that reach from Appalachicola in Franklin County, all the way to Perry in Taylor County. Um, So the outlying communities have a great need um, for services, and we've been able to, for the most part, um, have offices and staff in those locations to meet those needs of the rural communities as well. So there's a big push for us to do behavioral health, um, focus on substance use disorders, uh, mental health issues as well. So we have many clients who have co-occurring disorders. Um, child welfare is a big area. Um, for a long time, Disc Village did have a large imprint or impact on juvenile justice, but um, that has been reduced over the years. The bigger focus for Dis Village in that um areas, basically been child welfare, working with Department of Children and Families in our Family Services Division, in Child Welfare Division. Okay. So we kind of moved a little bit away from the larger um, juvenile justice um, imprint that we had. We ran programs and all kinds of things, and then just kind of moved away from that into the child welfare realm, um, which is more um, I think, in line with what we're trying to do overall in providing uh, individuals and families with assistance to address a uh, array of issues uh, regarding behavioral health problems, okay so, Yeah.
0: so so I do have a question because um, i am I'm gonna let it get into kind of some of the differences in some of the programs, but I remember when I first started, I was doing, I started off doing the Juvenile Assessment Center. And then I I was doing the juvenile residential program that was in Woodfield. So what happened to that program?
1: So the adolescent program, which was our longest standing program, ended up closing, gosh, probably six years or so ago. And the reason it closed was lack of referrals. So we weren't getting referrals to serve those clients. And without having the referrals, those services went away. So right now, what we did is we also did some rebranding. So it's now called youth services. Juvenile um, sometimes has a negative connotation. And um, the services that were offered are to so many different youth. Many of those programs had nothing to do with the juvenile justice system, so it made sense to uh, rename it to Youth Services. The Juvenile Assessment Center is one of the programs in the building. Um, There are six programs total. The Juvenile Assessment Center is uh, the 24 hour, seven day a week program that serves um, not only Leon County, but eight counties. Uh, where law enforcement agencies can bring kids who've been arrested for appropriate screening assessment and referral in safe and um, secure environment where they can be taken care of and the police then can get back to the doing what the police need to do Um, but there's also civil citation Mm -hmm. there is juvenile drug court our uh, youth outpatient program and our youth school counseling program and also health and wellness, which is a big, big program that provides the New Horizons uh, curriculum to uh, kids in the school system. Uh, They're providing services to Leon County schools, uh, elementary, middle school, high schools, as well as schools in Wakulla County, Taylor County, Um, trying to get some in Franklin, Liberty. So all the outlying counties are gonna have prevention specialists as well. Working with um, schools in those areas that we haven't quite reached yet, Um, but it's very exciting opportunity for expansion of these services to reach kids in the schools. Some of the funding came from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Act uh, for mental health, because we know that mental health services are so important in schools. So we have counselors that are there. New Horizons is also there providing preventative um, support for students. So between our community-based outpatient programs, our um, court-related programs, and our counseling programs, hoping to be able to cover all the bases when it comes to serving kids and families in the community. Gotcha,
0: yeah, because um, now that, because the the Residential Juvenile Program, going to that once a week, and the gentlemen having so many questions, that made that made me expand my curriculum, and started to um, really be more detailed about how I put my my information together and how I prepare to go to do classes because I'm I'm going to talk about one thing, okay. Now after I get through to talking about uh, HIV/AIDS, because it's, you it's it's kind of hard to stretch out HIV/AIDS for twelve months, and so. But they have so many other questions and I'm seeing how so many other things impacted them. So that made me that made me stretch and grow as an educator, because now I have to think about this and I prepare this and make sure I have this and answer these questions. So <laughs> it it was fun though. I definitely enjoyed it. And well that's and the great
1: thing about kids is they yes. will um they will ask a lot of good questions. Um, And keep you on your toes. So having to work with adolescents and their families for all those years definitely kept me in the know about things and programs and services, um, which are always changing and having to be, you know, revamped and and added on to so we can catch all those new trends that are coming because the kids get the trends before anybody else. Yes,
0: they do. And
1: they uh, they always seem to be at the forefront of those changes.
0: Yes, yeah. So the juveniles prepared me for the for the mothers in sobriety and sisters in sobriety and working with some of the other adults. And so, so with that being said, what are some of the differences in the services provided for the adults versus the uh, the youth?
1: Sure. Well, the focus for the adults is that, um, we approach it with community based care, and those are the outpatient programs and family services. And then we have residential treatment which you were talking about in woodville mm-hmm. so in woodville we now have expanded um so we lost the adolescent program but we're able to bring back the men's treatment program right. natural bridge recovery center also known as mbrc and sisters and mothers in sobriety which is also known as SIS and miss so we're now serving in woodville only adults Um, There is a standalone program for men and a standalone program for the women. So that is a huge piece um, of being able to provide adults in our community the um, intensive treatment that they need uh, on a residential uh, setting. Our community-based outpatient programs are all over Leon County as well as the outlying counties. Uh, they provide not only the outpatient services, which is assessments evaluations, individual counseling, group counseling, aftercare services, um, but we're also providing mat treatment so we can talk a little bit about that. That is a new service um, being provided and has brought in um, the ability for us to work with LPNs and an APRN um, as well as doctors to um, look at new, Uh, techniques and tools that we didn't have available to help individuals um, with their treatment needs utilizing medications. Um, These services aren't really um, utilized with adolescents and kids. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, So those are some of the main differences is, you know, when you're working with adults, you tend to work with them uh, standalone as individuals. Our family services unit, however, their focus is on Um, The family. So those programs are the Selected Family Intervention uh, Unit, the Family Intensive Treatment Unit. Those are um, programs that receive referrals from Department of Children and Families. So our Child Welfare and Family Services Unit is mainly um, linked in with Department of Children and Families in serving those clients. And then our adult outpatient, we can get referrals from anywhere. Um, Neighborhood medical center could send them, um, you know, yes. Do we get them from the courts? And yes, a lot. Um, And that has a lot to do with, you know, when people are needing treatment in the area of substance misuse or behavioral health uh, or even, you know, um, child welfare, a lot of times, you know, they don't walk in and go, hi, you know, I have this issue with methamphetamines and I really need help. It just, We wish it happened that way, but it really doesn't. So a lot of times what happens with these uh, with individuals is they have a crisis. Right. Something has pushed them into a system. Um, They've had some interaction with law enforcement or some other entity that has now um, forced them into services. So we understand that going in the majority of the clients we serve are involuntary. Um, Most of them don't want to be you know, coming in the door, but we know that, we know that starting off the, you know, right off the beginning and we can approach them and and work with them where they're at, because we know that these are areas that, like I said earlier, people didn't get there overnight. Uh, For adults, it's a lifetime, decades sometimes of trauma and different kinds of experiences that they've had that have gotten them to where they're at. Um, and then the newer thing, which is not that, is the um, opioid epidemic. Yeah. So what happened with the opioid epidemic is unlike those other clients we worked with for many years, which had, you know, long, um, lengthy trauma and those kinds of things. A lot of people who got involved with opioid use may not have ever had a prior traumatic life experiences right. It could have been from a simple um, surgical procedure or an injury on the job, yeah. um, things that happen to people every day. And then a doctor prescribed them medicine that they took, went to a pharmacy, picked it up, took it. And then soon thereafter, they realized their body needed it, wanted it, craved mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And those individuals had never experienced Anything like that before? So that is a new challenge, right? You know, you're dealing with a whole different kind of clientele than you are used to.
0: Right.
1: Um, So yeah that that in itself um, has really brought the stigmatization part of dealing with substance misuse to the forefront, because many people consider substance use to be a moral failing and we have to remove that stigma away from the conversation yeah um because that isn't the case um it has a lot to do with a, a lot of different reasons neurological psychological physical um you know ecology environment i mean so much goes into that so if we just make it easy for ourselves and say oh that person has a moral failing, they're, you know, they just lack the moral integrity to be better, um, then we're losing opportunities um, to reach
0: people and help people. But that, but if people are doing that, they're also not, in my opinion, they're not necessarily being realistic about their lives and, and just human beings, how we interact in the world around us, period. Because this, this, this substance that this person may be using may be harsher than the substance that you're using. But if you are drinking Coca-Cola all day, every day, it's the same thing. It's just well, tobacco, alcohol
1: right? are sold on every corner.
0: Exactly.
1: And we know that those substances kill people at large scales, so much so that the product has to have a warning on the packaging telling exactly. you it kills you. Exactly. But it's still sold every day
0: there's no more issues around.
1: That's right. So, you know, I think when I talk to people and try to bring it to their, um, to try to open their mind to think about it a little differently, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to opioid usage is for those individuals, um, you know, people don't think about it. They don't may not even understand it, but, you know, there was a very um, high profile individual um, who was a um right-wing talk show radio host, Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh had a back injury, some type of back problem. Well, he got addicted to opioids. He oh, yeah. got arrested because his addiction to opioids led him to purchase opioids um through the black market and then he right. got caught. So and you know, people don't realize that because you know, it, it did make the news, obviously that's how I know about it. Um, but it's that kind of thing to just have people have an understanding that this happens to um, neighbors, family members. It happens to just the average guy or gal walking around because the substance is so addictive. It didn't come with a warning label on the bottles.
0: Right, right.
1: That said, hey, you know, you may not want to take this for uh, right. Three weeks, because by the time you get done with your third week uh, prescription, you're going to be, your body's going to be
0: craving this medicine.
1: Um, We found out the hard way, and that's been over the last 15 years. So now with the lawsuits going up, just like the tobacco industry, all the major lawsuits that happened came funding for providing information about tobacco use and how to avoid. Now the same thing is happening with opioids. And funding is coming from these lawsuits for the pharmaceutical companies. So now there is um, the ability for us to do awareness and education, mm-hmm. um, different kinds of maybe research and development about how to address this, one of that being the MAP treatment. So we now know that this exists. This problem is there, how it got there, what we need to do to address it. And we can tackle that, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, opioids, methamphetamines, you know, um, any, any type of substance that individuals are using, we now know there's an array of treatment um, and things that we can do to address those problems, to bring people um, into healthier and more productive ways of living. And that's really what this is all about. Harm reduction strategies are a way in which we can have people be healthier and safer, um, even though we know that they might be engaged in riskier behaviors.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, because when I was going through the website and I saw the the medication Assisted treatment services, I was like, okay, that's that's something that. That is important, that is needed. And one of the reasons why I say that is because I've been I've been providing education classes to this village for over 10 years and especially going into the residential uh, areas or some of the residential programs. being familiar familiar with some of the some of the residents, um, some of them I've seen in uh, some of the communities that we work in. I've seen them before they got into the program, and then when they get into the program, you know, we get acquainted. And now, when they get out, I'll see them in the communities, and see them at the different stores. And some I uh, there was one young lady. Um, we were doing it was the homeless veteran stand down last year. I can't remember her name. She was a younger girl, but she went through the the Sisters in Sobriety um, when she and she did everything she was supposed to do, came out and she was working at the Stand Down. And we were just talking about just all the things that she's been able to do within the year's time and how she was able to uplift herself. And I like to see that. But I've also seen just beyond seeing some women who've had to go through the program more than one time, they go back to their environment and Things didn't go as planned. So they end up going back into the program. So but what I like about it, though, is you talked about some young ladies or some people who may be referred to this village and they really don't want to be there. But by the time they leave, their mindset has changed about being there and they've learned something because especially in the the sisters and sobriety, mothers and sobriety. The 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 ladies there will not allow you to fall behind. They're going to rally around you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to do do what they need to do to make sure they're picking each other up. Now, everything is not going to be peachy keen, hundred percent of the time. But what I can say is, I've witnessed over the years the ladies, even the young, even the the young boy, uh, the juvenile boys, when they were there, uplifting each other, picking each other, picking each other up, and encouraging each other to do better and make sure you get back out and go pursue your goals. So that's what I do love about
1: it. Yeah, I mean, you know, relapse is part of recovery. Yeah. Um, That's the weird thing about substance misuse is that, you know, there is no magic pill. There is no magic treatment. It is a, um, especially for adults, these individuals got where they're at over decades of behaviors and issues that need to be addressed and, um, dealt with. And it takes a long time. Um, you know, people think that even with overdoses, like, Oh, somebody would overdose and they live through that. Oh, they'll never do that again. No. mm -mm. Some people overdose multiple times before they either end up dead or in treatment. Um, same thing with, uh, rehabilitation, you know, going into a rehabilitation center coming out, um, Support is so important. Um, Being able to get people to um, the resources that they need to be successful. You know, this is really a community problem and a community resolution that we have to solve. I mean, building resilient communities is super important because if not, no matter if someone goes into a rehabilitation system or incarcerated system, If they come out and there's no support and resources, nothing really has changed exterior for them. Interior, inside, there may be a whole lot of changes that have happened. But if the external part of their world hasn't changed any, it makes it really hard to implement the internal changes that you've worked so hard to gain. So, you know, we all need somebody. Um, You know, even... even the people who have, you know, seem to have it all. Um, I think at some point they had to have somebody behind them, oh, yeah. um, giving the encouragement and support that they needed to be successful. I,
0: I don't believe there's uh, such thing as having having anything without some type of overcoming or or because you you have to discipline yourself, you have to structure yourself, you have to grow, you have to learn, you have to make mistakes, you have to pick yourself back up you yeah. everything is not going to be perfect we're not all dealt the same hand some people's hands that they're dealt is great some people's are not but with you know equality of opportunity not necessarily going to end uh result in equality of outcome but it's just right. taking advantage of the opportunities that you have and the more that you can take advantage of that will help inc- improve the quality of your life
1: well, let's talk a little bit about MAT treatment because I think it's super yes. important and it's also new and I want to make sure that um, people have that information. So um, and a person gets referred, they come to the adult services office, they're going to always start with an assessment. The assessment is the kicking starting off point where everything is so that we can learn a lot about the individual to really understand what services would be beneficial. Right. So if an individual uh, appears to meet criteria and seem to be appropriate, um, for example, Vivitrol is a medication that is uh, non-addictive. It's an extended release injection that's used to treat alcohol dependence and help prevent opioid relapse for 30 days. So if there seem appropriate for that, they can get mm-hmm. referred to the um, nurse who's going to do the evaluation there, and then they can get them set up on that treatment regime where they would come into a medication clinic and they would get the medication um, distributed to them through a medical professional. Right. And um, the Suboxone is, uh, they have, you know, different kinds of forms of that medication, um, So that is proven to be safe and effective in treatment of opioid dependence. So there is a couple of different ones. The one right now that we're using as a harm reduction strategy, harm reduction tool, is the Narcan. And that's a little bit more familiar, I think, with people just because it's out there as a um, a reversal for an overdose. So Narcan is a nasal spray. Um, The FDA has approved it. It is emergency treatment for a suspected opioid overdose. Um, We're getting those out into the hands of first responders through the HEROES Act, which is um, an opportunity for uh, emergency response uh, units and ambulances, anybody who's like an EMT, a first responder, so that they can get Narcan and have it readily available for their employees who um, engage and interact with community members every day who may be experiencing opioid overdoses, but we're also looking at, we have created what we're calling leave behind kits. So the leave behind kits are available free to community members. Um, They've been distributed now to the Jefferson County Health Department and the Madison County Health Department. uh, Those leave behind kits have Narcan in them, and they also have um, fentanyl test strips in them. They have guides and information about how to use the Narcan and the fentanyl test strips. They have uh, treatment information in there so that if and when the individuals are ready, uh, they'll have access to uh, know where to go to get treatment in their yeah. area. And the important part of this leave behind kit is not to be able to say, now you've got everything you need to use, go ahead and use it. And don't, you know you don't have to worry about anything. It's not about that. It's saying, We know that you're engaged in this risky behavior. We know that this risky behavior can lead to death. And we know that you're not quite there yet Mm -hmm. for getting treatment. But we want to keep you as safe and healthy as we can while you're engaging in this risky behavior. So here are some tools that you can use that will keep you alive. The fentanyl test strips allow the individual to test the drugs that they have so that they can see if those drugs have fentanyl in them. Fentanyl is what is killing people. Um, Opioids, absolutely. Can a person have a reaction and an overdose just by using them? Yes. But the majority of the people who are overdosing due to an opioid overdose is the use of um, fentanyl. Because fentanyl is being um, laced in to substances that people have. They don't know that that's what they're getting and that's what's killing them. So the fentanyl test strip guide kind of says, okay, this is how you test your drug. Now you know that there's fentanyl in it. Here, what's your plan? Because we know that an individual who's in that state of mind isn't gonna go, oh gosh, there's fentanyl in here. I'm gonna throw this in the trash. That's not what's gonna happen. But now they can say, okay, do I have Narcan? Is that available? Do I have somebody with me? Um, you know, maybe I'll use less. Maybe I'll you know make sure that I you know dilute it down. whatever it is that that individual needs to do. They now have the knowledge and then can plan so that they will hopefully stay alive. Right. Narcan kits can be given to individuals who have family members or loved ones they know uh-huh. that have this issue, so it's at the house especially in a rural community, by the time an ambulance arrives for a 911 call for an overdose may be too late. And if that family member has Narcan on hand and can administer it, it may revive that individual so that they can get them to the emergency room to get the treatment they need and to get the help that they need. You know, The sad thing is if someone's dead, we can't treat them. And if we can keep them alive long enough to get them where they're ready, to start the stages of change, then we can provide them the treatment and the, and the support and the resources. And that's when that treatment can come into play because people a lot of times don't want to stop because they're scared of the withdrawals.
0: Yes. Yeah. And the withdrawals yeah.
1: are serious, very physically debilitating, but the medication can help them so that they're not going through such an intensive uh, withdrawal of that uh Substance. So, with medication, with support, treatment, counseling, um, that person has a higher success rate um, in order to for their recovery.
0: That's that's extensive. S-O. Yeah, and that that, that is good because it it's, it's options. It's on hand treatment. All of those things rolled into one. So uh but that and that also changed the game so uh the narcan so there's a person have to be enrolled in a program like this village or another uh uh substance abuse program to be able to access narcan is that something that's over the counter as far no, as you know
1: not have to we have it in our uh lobby someone can walk in the door they're on the a okay. table they can get a box of narcan and walk out okay um the leave behind kits, they go to the health department, they say, I need a leave behind kit. No name, nothing, they get handed to it, have a great day, out they go. The yes. goal eventually will, if possible, we can maybe even have locations where we know individuals are um, going to, where they can have free Narcan available to them in the community. Right. Uh, Boxes where people could, like um, vending boxes, where people can come and get them and then we restock. Um, there's all kinds of ways that we can get this medicine out to those who need it, but it does not require the individual to be in treatment to access that medication.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, you um, also have a re-entry program. Yes. Could you explain that for us, please?
1: It is part of the adult services um, array of services that are offered. The reentry program is designed to help um, adult individuals who are reintegrating back into the communities from um, being incarcerated, whether it's at a county jail or um, prison system. Uh, Majority of those referrals are coming from the location where the individual is coming out of. Uh, That way they have probably at that facility determined that that individual might need some assistance with substance use, um, behavioral health services, mental health services. And so they refer to organizations like Village, um, where we can then link in with those individuals prior to them getting out of the facility, um, get them uh, signed up to be enrolled in whatever program is appropriate. And then upon their departure from that facility, Link in with them so that we can provide them with the services that we have to offer. Um, I wish it was more in depth. I wish we could do more for um, those individuals. Maybe they might be coming from that and going into residential treatment, Um, but for the most part, they're going to be receiving services from the community. Yes. So and uh, and there, uh, Wakulla County has reentry. Jefferson and Madison have a designated reentry. Um, individuals that service those locations. And then adult services can provide an array of services to those individuals, whether it's in Franklin County, Gadsden County, Leon County, Taylor County, and at our regular adult services locations.
0: Gosh. So all these programs that this village have, all the services that you were providing to adults and to the youth, then COVID hits. How did how did COVID affect the way services were provided to you? Yeah, okay.
1: COVID affected everybody. Nobody uh, got away from that one. Um, we went mainly virtual for outpatient related services. Residential services did not shut down. We closed the campus, so the clients weren't going in and out because um, they do. They go into the community every right. day. They have jobs and right. go into different things um there were extremely strict protocols for staff because staff were going in and out so there had to be very strict protocols so luckily we didn't have to close residential services down the juvenile assessment center didn't close down so our 24-hour a day 7-day a week programs just kept kept on with a um much more intensive regime of um hygiene and, you know, infection control protocols and those kinds of things. So outpatient went mainly um, virtual and family services went virtual. Courts went virtual. Um, And then last year, as things began to open up, um, we reintegrated in-person services. Now we offer hybrid. So because what we learned from COVID, which was really a great Thing is that virtual services are a tool that we needed to utilize for many individuals mm-hmm. that it allowed them to seek and obtain services where they may not have been able to do so before, yep. especially in our rural communities. So with the hybrid, you have um, in-person, so that works for those individuals who need that, and then virtual. Um, uh, counseling. So those individuals who uh, benefit from those kinds of services can get that as well. Um, one of the things we're looking at, trying to bring to the Jefferson County Health Department is a kiosk, which, uh, those individuals in Jefferson County, since we don't have an office location in Jefferson County, they would be able to go to the kiosk at the health department and receive, um, substance use counseling services at the, um, office there at the kiosk that we had set up. So virtual is uh, a tool that everybody is now using in some capacity when it comes to counseling, especially removing barriers for individuals that live in rural communities because transportation is a big barrier. Um, We also know broadband is a big barrier. So if we could have it at a office location within that county and or Get them to a place where they can have access to broadband, to virtual services. They can even do it on their phone um, where they can link in with a therapist and talk to them as long as they have access to um, wireless or some type of broadband.
0: Right. Yeah. (laughs) Virtual services. Well, one thing we learned a lot of organizations, but us, we learned that we can make a difference virtually. Now, it doesn't. Nothing doing outreach. Nothing yeah. tops face to face. Nothing tops mm-hmm. that. But so many more people that we can reach, and it's a it's an addition to what we do, face to face. So that That's that right. component we do have. That's exactly That's why right.
1: we're here, right here. That's <laughs> right, and you are absolutely right. When it comes to certain services in person, you can't beat in person. Um, right. But all the tools that we use are important. Because those tools allow us to do something that we couldn't do before, whether it was technology, medication, um, resources, funding, all of it.
0: Right, right, right. It's, it's 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 been a it's been a blessing and an addition, a great addition to everything that we do. Like I say, it, is, it allows us to reach many, many, many more people. So
1: COVID forced us to do that. Whereas we kind of dabbled around the edges with e-therapy for years, but oh boy, did we uh, hit it full force when that (laughs) when the the pandemic hit?
0: Yep, yep, yep. Telehealth over here. (laughs)
1: Yeah. That's
0: right. That's right. So you you've worked in social work, juvenile justice for over 34 years. What what is your proudest moment? Of, of your time working in this field and um, why do you think this village is an asset to the community?
1: Well, let's do this. I, You know, it's funny, it has to proudest moments when I think about that, I rarely ever think about like, for myself, because I'm not really big into accolades. Um, I think when I look at like, what's been accomplished over my career is the connections that I have made mainly with, um, the student interns that I work with and have for three decades, because what that has allowed me to do is always see the next generation taking it and going forward in doing the good work. Um, you know the good trouble.
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: That's right. Um, so being able to work with the interns at the universities, um, getting them into the field, being able to watch them grow, see what, how they take this and where they go. I mean, <clears throat> my little part that I play when I watch these people obtain their Bachelor's degree, their master's degree, getting licensed, becoming licensed practicing clinicians, involved in so many different of uh, ways in which they're bringing um, their knowledge and expertise to those individuals who need it the most, becoming supervisors with our agency. Um, it just brings me great pride um, to know that I have had the um, the pleasure and the ability to work with so many individuals who are now in the behavioral health helping profession. And just, it, it's just, it, it makes me happy because, you know, it's the next generation that's going to take it to, to, to bring all those services and all the things. So yeah. that I have to guess, I'd say is probably the proudest thing I have is being able to work with young people um, every semester and um, you know, being able to help them start their careers and then serve those who need it most. Agents okay. of change. They're yes. agents of change. Yeah,
0: yeah okay. you answer you answer both questions with that one. <laughs> That's great. Because And,
1: and Dis Village is part of that. We yes. are we are part of that mission. Um by in the agency by allowing all those student interns to come on board. And um, what a blessing that is. And yeah. um, I actually think the agency's impact over 50 years being in the community has been the thousands and thousands of lives that it has brought a positive impact um, to all these individuals and families in yes. the Big Bend region. Uh, 50 years is a long time and we wouldn't be here if we weren't doing good work, if we weren't accountable to those that we serve and we weren't providing, um, you know, the very valuable services to those most underserved and individuals who need it the most.
0: Yep. Yeah. I told you while she was great. I told you, I told you, I told you, I told you, you Miss Lisa Sharon. Oh, been. Joseph. <laughs>
1: It was my pleasure. I'm so thankful that you have allowed me the opportunity to talk about the agency, Disc Village, the services that we provide, and um, the reason that we're here.
0: Yes, Disc Village has. I see it as an asset to our community. It's definitely been great to me. I've seen, like I say, seen a number of adults and a number of children come through the different, the various programs. And those who take advantage of the services, being able to change their lives and improve their lives. Because I still see some, some of the youth uh, running to them every now and then and like, oh, you're doing this? Congratulations. you! They're, they're really advancing in life. And they are. that's just a that's just testament. We all make mistakes in our lives. Yes. And a person's, uh, their whole life shouldn't be judged off of a mistake,
1: especially if they take great. the
0: time to improve themselves. That's it. That's absolutely right. So so let's say Oprah Winfrey or Barack Obama, or somebody scrolling through YouTube one day and they see this interview and they say, I love Miss Lisa Sherry. I, <laughs> I want to get in contact with her. What's the what's the way that uh, others can get in contact with you if they want to interview you or if people want to learn more about this village services? How can they contact
1: you? I think email is probably the best way. And uh, I don't know if you can put that up, but uh, uh, people can reach me at my um, email, which is lisa dot sherry at diskvillage dot org. Always available. Best way to get me. Don't have to worry about phones. Not you know someone not picking up the phone, and um, I'm super responsive to that, and will be happy to help anybody anytime. And anybody can contact Disk Village. Uh, through the website, through our main office number, and ask any question, and they'll get directed to the right organ, um, the right program within the organization. So our main office number uh, for administration is eight five zero five seven five four three eight eight, and that is the main number for
0: the agency. So her website. I mean, yeah, the website, yeah, the email. And website, and the number, absolutely.
1: It, website is www.disvillage.com. Yeah. I'm sorry, disvillage.org. So it's right. um, www.disvillage.org.
0: So for all our viewers, you know, scroll down to the description, the website, email, and the and the phone number is in the description. You can access everything that you need. Ms. Lisa Sherry, I, I appreciate everything, everything that you do for our community. And this is how we keep the ball rolling. And we end season three strong. So we're going to take a three-week break because we got to take a big break. And then we're going to come back in three weeks with the beginning of season four. But – just know season four will be as hard-hitting and impactful as our previous three seasons. So this is a great way to, to close out season three. And remember, Mind Your Body and Soul is an educational podcast that focuses on all things health-related to help our listeners learn more about the various health topics and information they may not have access to. We seek to inform and power, uplift, and mobilize our listeners to become the healthiest versions of themselves. Remember, website is www.nmcpodcast.com. And our parent website is www.neighborhoodmedicalcenter.org. They're all in the description, as well as our podcast platforms, Anchor Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Google Podcasts. They're all in the description. You can access them and subscribe to this YouTube channel. Like this video, comment and subscribe. And we'll see all you beautiful people season four. Peace out. Peace out.